What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6pm Tuesdays. You're tuning in to Done by Law at 3CR on 855 AM and welcome to our listeners tuning in live, online or listening to our podcast. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional and rightful custodians of the land we're broadcasting from tonight. We pay our respects to elders and acknowledge that this land was stolen and never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. It's 6pm on the 21st of September and we're your hosts, Indy and Jeremy. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Indy. I'm very excited about this topic today. We're talking about the new laws that have passed in Parliament in late August called the Identify and Disrupt Laws. I'm really interested to hear your view on this. My understanding is that the laws give the Australian Federal Police and the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission and obviously other law enforcement agencies this additional power to spy domestically. And this law doesn't operate alone. It works in tandem with a whole suite of other data retention and telecommunication laws, which all work together to create really a a mass surveillance system here in Australia. And while the original intention was there to curtail alleged terrorist activity and serious sex offences, it can also be used to stop activists like anti-war or climate activists. Absolutely. And I think that's always a concern for a lot of people. The problem with this one when doing a bit of research was that I either had documents that were 1,300 pages long or there were just a few throwaway articles in mainstream media. From what I can tell here, it allows government to hack into Facebook, WhatsApp and, and effectively any internet service to stop those types of offences. At least that's what the intent is. And it's done with very little oversight from what I can tell. I understand the need for these types of operations to be secret. You can't have the investigative methods put out to public when you're dealing with terrorism and things like that, because you're effectively giving them the playbook. But there is some concern there with the lack of oversight. You've said it really well with the with the web of legislation that's there. I think one of the articles referred to it as a bit of a dog's breakfast. And as we'll hear from our guests, the definition of what type of offence can give rise to some of these powers is so broad that although, yes, it can relate to, say, alleged terrorism-related activity, can also impact activists who stage actions in relation to, say, Pine Gap and anti-war actions. So it has this really broad power and captures a lot of the important activist work that we want to see continue. Uh, So, Jeremy, who are we speaking to today? We've got two guests with us today, which is really great. We've got Angus Murray and Lizzie O'Shea. 
Now, Angus is a partner and trademarks attorney at Irish Bentley Lawyers. He holds a published Master of Laws from Stockholm University. He lectures law, technology, and your future at the University of Southern Queensland. He's also the co-founder and director of The Legal Forecast, a member of the QLS Innovation Committee and IP and Technology Committee, a vice president of the Queensland Council for Civil Liberties, the chair of Electronic Frontiers Australia's Policy Committee, and a board member of the Australasian Cyber Law Institute. Angus is passionate about the future of law and human rights advocacy. And Lizzie O'Shea is a lawyer, activist and writer. Her commentary on the law, technology and human rights is featured regularly on television programs and radio. She's also the founder and the chair of Digital Rights Watch, which is an organization advocating for human rights online. Lizzie also sits on the board of Blueprint for Free Speech and the Alliance for Gambling Reform. At the National Justice Project, Lizzie worked with lawyers, journalists and activists to establish a cop watch program. For this program, she was the recipient of the Davis Projects for Peace Prize. And in 2019, Lizzie was named a human rights hero by Access Now. Thank you, Angus and Lizzie for being part of the discussion on done by law today. I'll start with you, Lizzie. The identify and disrupt amendments operate as part of an extensive suite of surveillance laws in Australia. We've really seen an increase of surveillance powers over the past 20 years Is this something that we should be concerned about? Uh, Well, thanks so much for the opportunity to talk about this. And I think the right way to start is by looking back uh, 20 years, really, to 9-11. Before that time, Australia didn't really have meaningful counterterrorism laws or anything like what we would understand it today. And over those past 20 years, we've passed an unprecedented amount of legislation in this space. So there's now 92 different counterterrorism laws. That's 5,000 pages approximately of various rules and regulations and offences. So a huge transformation in our democracy and a huge amount of law that now governs how national security works and how intelligence and law enforcement agencies operate. So I think it is right to start from that point in time. And I think this bill is probably the worst of them in some ways, but uh, represents the latest step in that journey. And for a more recent context, I suppose I'd look to the metadata retention laws, which were introduced uh, a few years ago and really was the birth of Digital Rights Watch, the organisation I'm chair of, which set up a regime of telcos holding metadata for later use by law enforcement and intelligence agencies without any meaningful kind of uh, limit on that. So no real warrant process. Uh, And then we've had the assistance and access bill, which turned into toll which is a set of powers that give law enforcement and intelligence agencies the opportunity to build tools to intervene into encrypted systems. And now we have this, which is a set of powers that's designed to reach into our networks and fiddle with our data, essentially build a system of mass surveillance without warrants. And those are probably the three most significant pieces of legislation in the last five or so years but they're escalating in their intensity and they're broadening the powers that are available to law enforcement and intelligence agencies in really profound ways. And I think it is changing the landscape of our democracy. Thanks for that. That does sound a bit concerning. In the context of this this latest amendment that's just been passed, the Identify and Disrupt Bill will, will be an act soon. Uh, Angus, what powers does this act actually provide for law enforcement? That's a very good question, Jeremy, and thanks for having me on Done by Law. Uh, to clarify, this is law, and this is another one that slipped through the keepers in terms of the way that Australians are now impacted by electronic communication surveillance. This became law several weeks ago uh, with effectively bipartisan support of the um, the parliament. And in the same sense and fashion as the legislation that Lizzie's just mentioned, the metadata retention and the assistance and access legislation, There's been a very short scope uh, and very 
narrow window for submissions in relation to the bills as they were introduced. And then they very rapidly became law passed by parliament with bipartisan support. And as Lizzie very accurately says, it fundamentally reshapes the context of our democracy and the powers that are within government that can be deployed against citizens. I think it's probably worn territory to describe these things as slippery slopes. And I think what we're seeing here is the boundary of power for government being pushed further and further and the rights of Australians being diminished more and more. So we don't see a slippery slope, we see a disbalancing of power between the state and the citizen. This new legislation, the Identify and Disrupt Act or the Surveillance Legislation Amendment Identify and Disrupt Act 2021 introduces three new warrant powers uh, and a fourth uh, assistance order power that are significantly powerful and significantly intrusive uh, arrangements that are now in the hands of the Australian Federal Police and the Australian uh, Crime Commission. The three powers are firstly data disruption warrants, which authorises law enforcement to disrupt data when there's a suspicion of a commission of an offence, and I'll come back to commissions of offences. The power that's there is the ability to modify, add, copy, delete uh, data on a computer, which is a very widely defined uh, concept in order to frustrate the commission of serious online offences. The second power is network activity warrants, which enables the Australian Federal Police or ACIC to monitor computer-related activities of criminal groups for the purpose of collecting intelligence. The definition of criminal groups is extremely uh, relaxed. It's a very, very broad definition that it would be very easy to fall within the category of a criminal group. And the third power is an account takeover warrant, which allows the Australian Federal Police to assume control of an online account where there's a suspicion that the account has been used for the commission of an offence. And the fourth is the assistance order, which is effectively the dovetail between this legislation and the assistance and access legislation that Lizzie's just mentioned. It requires a person who operates a network or um, electronic service to assist law enforcement with doing any of these things. So that could be a compulsion made by the Australian Federal Police for Facebook to remove uh, security features on the account that a person's using or the ability for uh, law enforcement to remove uh, certain securities one might have around uh, electronic messaging. And these powers are significant because I think, although I've just explained what the powers are in the context of the, the legislation, it's easy to look at this as state authorised hacking because that's exactly what this is. It, it's the ability for law enforcement to hack Australian and other persons' devices uh, on the basis of reasonable suspicion, which is a very low threshold, that a person might have committed an offence that is a serious Commonwealth offence, that is an offence that a person may be punished by three years or more in prison. And that is a very, very, very low bar in terms of the intention that, that was put behind this legislation, which is to prevent child exploitation material, human trafficking and to counter terrorism. And each of those three justifications, I think it'd be difficult to cover with being important to stop. But the threshold for those three things is significantly greater than three years imprisonment. The other criticism that exists in this legislation, I, I could continue with quite a few criticisms, is the way in which these warrants uh, can be authorised. The change that did manage to find its way into the Act before uh, it passed was uh, an eligible judge or a nominated administrative appeals tribunal member is the, the authorising person for one of the three warrants or the assistance order. Uh, with no disrespect to the administrative appeals tribunal, that is not a chapter three court. That is, it's not a court heard by a judge or an application heard by a judge. It's a executive member of government effectively authorising these warrants, which are considerable powers. 
and that this has become law without a great deal of reporting and scrutiny and hasn't been directly brought into the public eye, I think should be concerning for all Australians. If I can just add to that, I think Angus is right to criticise the AAT being originally the the tribunal that presides over this, and it does sort of call into question whether it's legitimately able to call these things warrants. But the other thing I wanted to say is that I, I do agree that it's essentially legislative regime for states state hacking. But the other component of it is, I think, is it looks a lot like PRISM and um, the other kinds of invasive mass surveillance that Edward Snowden talked about when he made his revelations about the NSA in 2013. The network activity warrant is designed for intelligence collection. So material that that might be collected in the course of, of using a network activity warrant it can't necessarily be used in court, but it is part of building a surveillance picture on how people use the internet. And the, it's kind of ridiculously broad how this is drafted to the point where really it allows intelligence agencies to get into any digital system that people are using in this country. And, and what, what we've seen is that that means they get into the systems that they do use those powers. Because what was clear with the NSA revelations was that even though it was unclear legally that it was permitted, the agency still did it because they wanted to collect everything. They wanted to build their intelligence capabilities by uh, having access to this data and being able to analyse it. And I think that our intelligence agencies have a similar ambition. And now there's no risk that this could be considered unlawful. In fact, it's been endorsed by the parliament. And that I think we should expect, I suppose is what I'm saying, intelligence agencies to make use of these powers, not just presume that they're only going to be relied on in extreme circumstances. And do some of the network providers or or organisations like Facebook and WhatsApp, do they have any options available to them to push back on some of these powers or do they just have to lay down and allow governments to be able to, you know, get into their servers or to be able to access private information of people who use their platforms? The short answer is no. And one of the concerning things that's happened in this progression over the last 20 years, and particularly the last five years, is the changes that have been made to the Telecommunications Act. So formerly the Telecommunications Act dealt with carriage service providers. That's your Telstra's and Optus's in Australia, the people who are providing telecommunications infrastructure and networks. With the Assistance and Access Act in 2018, the toller, as Lizzie referred to before, a new concept of designated communication provider was introduced, which is effectively anyone who does uh, anything in the internet, including operating a website, where they have an end user. So the the powers here are dramatically wider than what they've been in the past in pre-9-11 contexts. And the things that can be required of designated communications providers is dramatically expanded. If a person doesn't assist with the technical capability known as some of the assistance and access legislation, or let's say they are the subject of they're liable for up to 10 years in prison. The same penalty applies in relation to the Identify and Disrupt Act. The person who makes uh, their users aware of the existence of these warrants or an assistance order uh, liable for up to 10 years in prison. So it puts technology providers in a very difficult position. And uh, I consider this to be problematic, not just from the perspective of the interaction between law enforcement and the community, but also society and technology. These powers inherently create a situation where not only can Australians no longer fully trust technology or place a reasonable expectation of trust in technology, the technology itself can't trust Australian users of that technology because these powers exist and because there is the potential for technical capability notices, account takeover warrants, 
or as Lizzie said, a more intrusive uh, form of mass surveillance in the form of a, a network activity, an activity warrant being placed over a network. And I'd just also like to make the point that in these changes, definitions have changed as well. So with the TOLA came a change to the definition of computer in the Surveillance Devices Act. The computer is now a computer, two computers, two or more computers, or a network of computers. And to me, that sounds horribly like the internet. And we shouldn't be able to issue warrants over the internet with a judge presiding over the warrant issue or not, because that is simply far too intrusive and exceeds, I think, the jurisdiction not only of the AAT, but of Australia, if we consider the internet as the, the subject of these warrants. I, I think Angus is largely right. This regime is designed to stop uh, companies getting in the way of surveillance by intelligence and law enforcement. So that's definitely its objective. I mean, I think tech companies can still do things to support users and to protect them against this kind of behaviour. But it is ultimately a situation where if the state surveillance regime wants to get access to your network and you're a provider of that as a tech company, then you're in trouble. Now, you may not particularly be concerned about the uh, the seriousness of this for tech companies, but it, tech companies have made these claims to government. That's the only other bit I'd add, that there are technology companies that are Australian that try to sell their services overseas to, you know, organisations that need to use secure technology um, and the problem that they now face is if people won't want to buy that because they can't be assured that it's not been tampered with by the Australian government. And that's usually the argument that's put in relation to things, well, commonly put in relation to Chinese technology companies, which I think is kind of telling. And it, it, it does sort of raise the spectre that really what this is about is a, a new um, frontier of international relations and, you know, a form of warfare as well, that state-sponsored hacking is a form of um, warfare that's inf- increasingly going to be used in the future. And I think zooming out and seeing it from that perspective is important to understand its significance, both for citizens, but also internationally where we're heading. Thanks, Lizzie. That was really insightful. I didn't really consider those types of those impacts. If I could just go back to Angus, you did speak about some of the checks there and and you had some criticisms of them, some of them being the AAT members, as well as the um, threshold for the offences. Could you speak a little bit more to that and perhaps about any other checks that are in place to ensure that these powers are used appropriately? The check and balance that sits around this is incredibly important because that is effectively the safeguard against an abuse of power. To preface this, I'm not saying the government is abusing the power, but what I would say is this legislation creates a situation where the power is there and capable of abuse, and that's something that should be concerning for every single member of the Australian community. It should be particularly concerning because the greatest check and balance that we could have, a human rights framework that's enforceable at the federal level, doesn't exist in this country. It does exist in every other Western democratic uh, state. And if we turn to the European Union and we use mandatory metadata retention as an example, the European Union has checked and balanced that against human rights and considered that indiscriminate metadata retention is unlawful and incompatible with the right to privacy. We don't have that right in Australia. We don't have a human rights legislation framework in Australia sufficient to be able to check and balance the power as it's used. Above that, and I think more concerningly, a very large part of these powers exist because we are in a form of democracy where we implicitly trust government to do the right thing. Unfortunately, the government doesn't have a particularly good track record of adhering to that trust bargain between 
it and the citizens. And if we turn again to metadata retention, we use that as an example. The only warrant that's required in relation to metadata retention is for journalistic information. Despite that being the only warrant requirement in metadata retention, which is a problem in itself, the federal police have accessed journalist information without warrants. So the trust is broken there. To amplify that, a lot of these arrangements are inherently secret. They're national security arrangements that the way in which they're deployed against uh, individuals or groups of people isn't released or known to people when it's occurring. So we have to trust the integrity of these uh, portfolios when they're given powers like this. And again, unfortunately, these portfolios haven't, in my view, earned that trust. And I think we should be concerned about the way that these powers could be wielded or the way that these powers may affect the expectations Australians have in future in relation to human rights. I would just say often these ideas are framed that these kind of extreme powers are needed by law enforcement and intelligence and that compromising on them undermines their capacity to do their job. But there's many ways in which these could be tempered and, and haven't been. Angus talked before about the seriousness of offences that might trigger the use of the data disruption warrant and that you could make it more serious offences only. You could have reporting arrangements in place. You could also have a, a burden placed on the decision maker who's approving these warrants that they've got to consider other less intrusive ways to access this information first before agreeing to grant one of these warrants. These are the kinds of things that would normally be considered if we did have a human rights regime as pretty much standard. And, you know, we stand alone relative to other um, liberal democracies in that respect. And so it's not actually that difficult to introduce quite a range of different safeguards that could limit the use of these to the most extreme circumstances. And it's quite telling, of course, that that's not what we've got. Data disruption warrant, for example, as we've heard from Angus, will give the AFP and the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission or other law enforcement agencies acting on their behalf the power to add, copy, delete or alter files on a computer so as to frustrate the commission of a crime. And we've heard that the definition of relevant offences are so broad Lizzie, how do you see these new powers affecting activists like anti-war activists who stage actions at Pine Gap or climate activists or lawyers and whistleblowers? Yeah, this is one of the key concerns that I think a lot of people in this space have, that there's a set of people who are particularly vulnerable in these circumstances that are essentially uh, that make themselves enemies of the government for very good reasons and now can expect, I think, that these kinds of authorizations, warrants and the like will be used against them. And I think that is something that has been has occurred around the world that, you know, governments love keeping an eye on their enemies and um, and we should expect that. You know, Angus mentioned before the journalist information warrant, which was introduced as part of the metadata retention regime. So it was the one concession that the government gave out. Okay, well, we have this metadata retention regime to access it. If you're going to access a journalist's metadata, you need to apply for a warrant. And you could easily have implemented this in relation to this particular regime as well. You could say, oh, well, you know, human rights advocates, journalists, whistleblowers and the like could also have had an extra piece of protection introduced to ensure that these are uh, powers are being directed to what the government tells us they will be, which is, you know, terrible crimes like child exploitation and terrorism offences and stuff like that. But that's obviously not what we have. So, you know, our sense of this is that activists should be concerned 
and should take this very seriously uh, and should not just presume that digital security and these kinds of topics are things that happen to other people in other countries, that in fact they do happen to people here and they should take this quite seriously in our view. Yeah, I, I think that there's a very legitimate concern about the way in which this legislation might be used um, beyond the scope of the rhetoric that the government put around it, as Lizzie said. These powers are sold as the necessary tools that government requires to combat terrorism, child exploitation, human trafficking. And I agree, each of those things are abhorrent to any society and need to be combated. But this legislation doesn't stop there and doesn't limit itself into that place. It is extremely broad. We've seen recently revelations and information around the Pegasus platform that has been used against human rights activists around the world. And there is a striking similarity between the what Pegasus was doing, the, the iOS zero-click exploit that effectively allowed law enforcement agencies into telephones and the powers that have just been introduced in the Identify and Disrupt legislation. And again, we are alone in the world uh, in a Western democratic sense because we don't have a human rights framework that protects people. I'm also concerned to make the point that if we look at this in isolation, if we look at this from the perspective of this is one piece of legislation, it probably isn't that scary. When you zoom out and you see the 90 plus pieces of legislation that have been introduced post 9-11, and particularly the legislation that's been introduced over the last five years, we are rapidly rallying power up into a single agency that operates inherently secretly, and we're not slowing down. While this is happening, we also have a piece of legislation, which is the uh, identity service matching bill sitting in the federal parliament, which is effectively the ability for biometric facial recognition to occur in Australia. We also have the telecommunications legislation amendment for international production orders, which is effectively the legislation that enables us to use these tools to help our mates overseas, to, to help the US law enforcement agencies with their um, electronic communication surveillance from an Australian perspective. And the portfolio that's introducing these legislative amendments are largely doing so with a preordained future. So when the Identify and Disrupt legislation was introduced into Parliament, Peter Dutton, the Minister for uh, Defence, immediately referred this to the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security and required the committee to report by March this year so that this legislation could pass in the August sittings of Parliament this year. That's exactly what happened. And even though the Parliamentary Joint Committee made 33 recommendations in relation to amendments to this bill and amendments to the way that the Home Affairs portfolio introduces legislation into Australia, very few of those recommendations are actually picked up. So the check and balance before this becomes law wasn't properly followed. And I'm concerned that we have a portfolio that's introducing more and more intrusive power with each of these powers having a similar justification, but not limited in scope. And we are at a weakness in Australia because we don't have the check and balance about that. And I would be concerned and make the point very seriously that even if this doesn't affect a person today and now, and a person can't feel and touch the consequences of this legislation, which is what most people need to do to be concerned about something, this legislation will feel and touch the future generations of this country in a way that may impact the ability for us to have meaningful human rights protections in this country and meaningfully organise as a democracy and exercise free will in a society. I think that that point really needs to be reinforced around this legislation. It seems that these laws around data retention identify and disrupt and the telecommunication laws that 
we have are really working in tandem to create a very powerful almost mass surveillance system here in Australia. Thank you so much, Lizzie and Angus, for speaking with us today. It was great to hear your views on this. And although quite concerning, we're very lucky to have people educating the community on these laws, because as we know, largely they happen without a lot of consultation and on a bipartisan platform. So I think that it's really good to have this discussion today. Thank you very much for talking with us on Done By Law. Thank you, India. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Lizzie. Always a pleasure. Always great to talk to you. Thanks for the opportunity. Victoria, to keep us safe, we know what to do. There are only five reasons to leave home. Shopping for food and supplies that you need. Exercise, both within five kilometres of your home or as close to home as possible. Care and caregiving. Authorised work or education if you can't do it from home. Getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are mandatory indoors and outdoors. And if you have any symptoms, get tested. For the latest updates, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne, a 3CR supporter. You've been listening to Done By Law on 3CR 855 AM on the 21st of September with your hosts, Indy and Jeremy. You can listen to this show on your radio, online, and where you get your podcasts like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you love listening to Done By Law and community radio and you'd like to continue to support us here, you can subscribe to 3CR or donate online, in person, or by phone. Don't forget to mention Done By Law when you do so that we can continue to discuss important social justice issues with you on Tuesday nights. The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates, and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter.